morning, church. Good morning. As we'd like to say here, welcome home. We welcome those who are joining us on live stream. Glad to have you with us as well. Glad to have any guests who are here today. I know I've seen some guests. Hey, I want to start this morning with an, a quiz, kind of a history quiz, an Independence Day quiz, because that's coming up. That's this week is Independence Day. So we've got five questions and then one bonus question, because these first five are pretty much gimmies. They're multiple choice, and I think you're going to know them all. And the sixth one is a little bit more difficult. Number one, in what year was the Declaration of Independence adopted? 1876, 1976, or 1776? See? Number two, on what day was the Declaration of Independence signed? Was it January 31st, April 1st, or July 4th? See, July 4th, July 4th, that's this week. January 31st, was, oh, that's my birthday. That's right, yeah. I don't know how that got up there. Number three. The committee formed to draft the Declaration of Independence was headed by A. George Washington, B. Thomas Jefferson, C. James Madison, D. Abe Lincoln. That is B. Thomas Jefferson. Number four, Independence Day was first celebrated in what city? Boston, Washington, Philadelphia, or Vero Beach? <laughs> Philadelphia. And number five, who was the first person to sign the Declaration of Independence? George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Hancock, or H.C. Altheiser? He was there, but he was not the first to sign it. That's John Hancock. Now, here's the sixth one. Here's the bonus question, a little more challenging. What are the first words of the Declaration of Independence? A, we hold these truths to be self-evident. B, when in the course of human events. C, governments are instituted among men. Or D, four score and seven years ago. It is B, when in the course of human events. Very good. When in the course of human events. Now, some of you may be thinking, Steve, what's this all about? How come we're talking about the Declaration of Independence instead of the Bible? This is church, not a God and country rally. Hey, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, growing up in church, we had the American flag up on one side of the stage, and we had the Christian flag on the other side of the stage. And on patriotic holidays, oftentimes we would stand and we would say a pledge of allegiance to the Christian flag. There's a pledge to a Christian flag. And then we would say the pledge of allegiance to the American flag. And we'd sing patriotic songs in church and whatnot. But there's a lot more ambivalence these days about Christianity and that whole overlap with patriotism. Here's what somebody posted on Facebook. I'm becoming more and more pessimistic about the way things are going in the United States with ruinous economic policies, increasing governmental intrusion and control. Supreme Court decisions, supporting immoral behavior. I'm not sure what to do. I want to be a loyal American citizen and a Christian. Does this allow me or require me to be in rebellion against my government? Should I continue to pledge allegiance to the flag? Should I stand when the national anthem is played? One of my former professors in Bible college, he's now retired, but some of you know Jim Smith, Professor Jim Smith. He wrote this on his Facebook page. I love old glory and patriotic songs, but I have a real problem with carrying these things over into the assembly of the saints. What do we communicate by displaying an American flag in our church buildings? Is not the church transnational? Should not any Christian from anywhere in the world be comfortable worshiping in our services with us? I have no problem with God and country rallies at other times and other places, but the kingdom of God is not American in any sense. Our commission does not include a mandate to promote patriotism, though privately I'm all for that. Well, these are thoughtful questions. Uh, they're legitimate questions. I want to talk a little bit today about this whole question of a Christian's relationship with his country and his government. Bottom line is, if it's addressed in the Bible, then it's legitimate to talk about on Sunday. It's part of the whole counsel of God that we need to be teaching and thinking about. 
And I want to approach this under two headings. And the first heading is this, a Christian's relationship to his government. The Bible does, the Bible does teach about this. It is not silent. What are our responsibilities? What is to be our Christian relationship to our government? I'm just going to say three things, maybe four. Number one <clears throat> is to obey the laws of the land. Right? And I'm going to go quickly here because most of us know this and we're already doing it. But just to lay a foundation, we're to obey the laws of the land. Romans 13, 1 through 5, everyone must submit to governing authorities. All governing authority comes from God. And these positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. This is in general. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Then do what's right, and they'll honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid. For they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what's wrong. So you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. So we're to obey the laws of the land. Uh, the police officer pulled over a convertible. There were four elderly ladies in the car. Their, their hair was windblown. Their eyelids were kind of peeled back. And as he pulled them over, the driver, the elderly driver said, the police officer said, I know I wasn't speeding. I don't know why you pulled me over. He says, no, ma'am, but the speed limit here is 30 miles an hour. You're doing 15. You're going too slow. You're backing up traffic. She said, how can that be? I saw the, the speed limit sign just right back there. It said 15. He said, man, that's highway 15, not the speed limit. That's highway 15. She said, I'm sorry, officer. I, I understand the difference now. I won't make that mistake again. And the, the police officer said, by the way, is everybody okay? Your, your passengers look really shook up. She said, they'll be fine. You have to understand, we just got off highway 192. <clears throat> hey, don't speed out there, and you don't have to worry about 5-0 giving you a ticket right around the corner. Just Obey the laws of the land. Number two, our responsibility to the government is to pay our taxes. Same passage, verse 6. Pay your taxes too for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They're serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes, your government fees to those who collect them. Give respect and honor to those who are in authority. So how are, how are our congressmen going to have their lifelong pensions and free medical care if we don't pay our taxes? So pay our taxes. And number three, our third responsibility is to pray for those who are in authority. Pray. Pray for our government leaders. 1 Timothy 2. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Even if you don't agree with whoever happens to be in government, a local, state, or national at any given time, we're still supposed to pray for them so that we can live lives of quietness and godliness and dignity. Now, our responsibility to obey the laws of the land, is that absolute in all cases, all circumstances? No, it's not an absolute responsibility. When the laws of man are ungodly and they conflict with the will of God, then Christians have an obligation, if there is a conflict between the two, to choose the laws of God. As Peter said, we must obey God rather than man when those two are in conflict. In other words, we practice civil disobedience. There are many examples of this in the Bible. Uh, let me give you two or three. Daniel in the lion's den. Most people have heard of Daniel in the lion's den. If you're not a Christian and Daniel gets thrown into a lion's den and God restrains the lion so they don't do their lion thing on Daniel, how did he wind up there in the first place? Civil disobedience. The king where he was living passed a law. You could only pray to the king. And Daniel prayed to God. That's civil disobedience. He obeyed, disobeyed the laws of the land. He was thrown into the lion's den. Here's a second example. Uh, while the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, 
the Pharaoh gave a law because he was worried about the proliferation of the Israelites. He said, any of these Hebrew women who are, give birth to a boy, you've got to kill the boy. Let the girls live, but you need to practice infanticide and kill all the boys. And the Hebrew midwives refused to obey that law. We know that when Moses was born, they let Moses live. His parents were disobeying that law. Many people in that community were practicing civil disobedience when the law of the land contradicted the law of God, the right to life, the sacredness, sanctity of life, which is established in Scripture. Here's a third example. As the apostles were preaching, there the Sanhedrin forbade them to preach in public the gospel. Now, our form of government has three branches, executive, legislative, and judicial. The Sanhedrin for the Jews were all three branches rolled up into one body. That was the Sanhedrin. So their government forbade them to preach the gospel, and the apostles said, hey, whether it's right to obey you rather than God, you be the judge, but we must obey God, and we're going to preach the gospel. And that's where that, I quoted that, Acts 5.39, we must obey God rather than men. That was civil disobedience for them. So all I'm saying here is when, it, when push comes to shove, if we're ever in a time where God's law conflicts with man's law, we must obey God's law as Christians. You know all of that. That's our relationship to our government. Now, I wanna, I've got a second heading here for the rest of the message. <clears throat> the Christian's relationship to his country. And you can discern here, I, I'm, I'm making a distinction between our government, whoever happens to be in authority, and our country. Our country is our land, the people, our heritage, right? Our, our country. These are two different things. And I think this may help us with some of the ambiguity, ambiguity that we feel and some of the conflicts we're trying to resolve. All right, let me say three things here. Number one, God created countries. God created the nation state. Acts 17, 26. From one man, God created all the nations throughout the whole earth. All right, so there's only one race, the human race. That's part of what's being said there, but also that God created nations and countries. God decided beforehand when those nations should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. There was a time back in the past, you read the Old Testament, where there was just one people. There weren't any countries, all one people, and they got together for an evil purpose, and God said, this is not good, and he scattered them all over the earth and created countries and nations. There's nothing unbiblical about how to, having a border God is for that. He's been in that, the establishment, the rise and fall of nations and, this, and their boundaries. And we know this when it comes to the nation of Israel. The, the, all, the history of the Old Testament that we read about is God's providential intervention and interaction with one nation, the nation of Israel. But he did not just do that for Israel. He did that for other countries as well. Amos chapter 9, verse 7. God says, are you Israelites more important to me than the Ethiopians? I brought Israel out of Egypt, but I also brought the Philistines from Crete, and I led the Arameans out of Kerr. What is he saying there? Yeah, I've been providentially involved with the nation of Israel. I've been providentially involved with the Philistines. I've been providentially involved with all nations, including this nation, modern-day nations. So all I'm saying right here is it's, God who, who, it's God's idea that we have countries and nations. Number two, it's natural to love your country. It's natural to love your country. We have a lot of examples of this in the Bible. Let me give you one. If you read the one-year Bible for your devotions, I do and a lot of you do as well, 
than today. In today's Old Testament portion, you were reading about how the Israelites were attacked by a foreign country, Assyria, and conquered, and the citizens were deported out of Israel and into Assyria. And they, those were called the exiles. Almost the whole population was deported out into Assyria. They were exiles. While they were living in exile, and that was, that was the northern kingdom of Israel. A little bit later on, it happened to the southern kingdom of Judah. They were attacked by Babylon. They were deported to Babylon. While they're living as exiles in a foreign country, we have a psalm that was written. It's Psalm 137, verses 1 through 6. Let me read this to you. And what it communicates is the love that these Israelites have for their country, Israel, that they have had to leave. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of the songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. And may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you. If I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. See the psalmist over here in Babylon, and he's remembering his homeland, his home country that he loved and had to leave. That's his patriotic fervor. But we, we, we often feel that for our country as well, patriotism, a love for your country. C.S. Lewis, theologian par excellence of the past generation, wrote about this in his book, The Four Loves, and kind of where patriotism starts starts with a love for our home. He writes, first, there is a love of home, of the place we grew up in, love of old acquaintances, familiar sights and sounds and smells. Think about the place where you grew up and how familiar that is, and maybe you love that. With this love for the place, there goes a love for the way of life. And he writes about his way of life as he grew up there in England with, for tea and open fires and trains with compartments in them and an unarmed police force and all the rest of it. He says, of course, patriotism of this kind is not in the least aggressive. It asks only to be left alone. It becomes militant only to protect what it loves. It produces a good attitude towards foreigners. How can I love my home without coming to realize that other men, no less rightly, love theirs? And once you have realized that the Frenchman loves croissants just as we like bacon and eggs, why, good luck to them. Let them have it. The last thing we want is to make everywhere else just like our own home. It would not be home unless it were different. So we love our, our home where we grew up, that way of life, it always is right there in our minds, and that expands into our love for our homeland and our, our country, even if we don't necessarily agree with what's going, everything that's going on in that country. The Israelites over here in Babylon who longed for their country, they didn't love the government that had caused them to be carried off in exile. The government leaders of Israel during that time were corrupt. They twisted the righteous laws of God, and that corruption trickled down to the people, and God said he was going to hold those leaders accountable. He sent the prophets to warn them. Exodus 34, 10, he said, I will hold these shepherds responsible for what has happened to my flock. Jeremiah 23, 1, what sorrow awaits the leaders of my people, the shepherds of my sheep, for they have destroyed and scattered the very ones they were expected to care for. Leaders were going to be held accountable by God. And the people were not innocent either. But people followed their leadership. Now, we can love our country today, and uh, we often do, even when things aren't perfect. Now, let me read you the rest of that quote from C.S. Lewis. But when a country proves sinful, as all do, 
Should citizens stop loving and hate it instead? Well, this would be like loving a child or a spouse only if they're perfect, which is absurd for the Christian since that means never loving them. No man loves his city because it's great, but because it's his city. God, of course, loved us. He died on the cross while we were still sinners, and we could not have reformed otherwise. So Christians should understand forgiving and loving others even when they're imperfect and still sinners. This concept can help believers maintain a healthy love for a sinful home and country. A country may need this type of love if it is to reform and turn to justice. I'm going to show you a clip from the movie, The Sound of Music. Now, you know I like musicals. I, I've watched this for years before I realized really what was happening in the story, the context of what was happening. The Sound of Music is based on a true story. There's some dramatic, twi- you know, for, there's some changes for dramatic effect. But Captain Von Trapp you know, married Maria, who had been studying to be a nun, and she was taking care of his children, and they got married, and they had a singing family, and all that is true. That, that, so in this scene that I'm going to show you is where Captain Von Trapp, you know, the family's giving a live concert, and he sings the song Edelweiss. Edelweiss. So what is happening in the plot, and this really happened, is during the time period where Nazi Germany annexed Austria, took over Austria. And Captain Von Trapp had been offered a commission in the German Navy. An offer he couldn't refuse. And he knew, he knew he couldn't accept that. If he served, he would be serving the Nazis. He knew he wasn't going to do that. So they had made a plan that after they gave, the family gave this public concert, they're going to sneak away. They're going to flee the country of Austria. They're going to leave, he's going to leave his country, his homeland. He's going to become an exile. So that's the context. So, so, this, the song that he sings, Edelweiss. Now, what is Edelweiss? Anybody know? It's a flower. It's a beautiful white flower that grows wild in Austria, kind of like their national flower. In the song, it symbolizes or represents the whole country. And as Captain Von Trapp sings it, it's, it symbolizes his love for his country and his heartbreak to what has happened to his country. And, of course, the whole audience of Austrians there, they join in the song at one point. You'll see the Germans there in the front row, and they're frowning and grimacing. They don't like what's going on. But so that, that's what's happening here in this song. Let's roll that clip, about two minutes. Put the lights down here, please. of snow may you bloom and grow bloom and grow forever Edelweiss Edelweiss bless my homeland forever Edelweiss, 
me tear up every time I see it. I tell you, when I, once I turned 50, I'm just an emotional mess. I mean, that was 10 years ago. Uh, but so, so you see, you see, well, they do a great job of communicating the patriotism, the love for their, their country, and the heartbreak over what's happening to it. Well, a lot of you, a lot of us, we love our country too. We love the home that we grew up in. We love our heritage. We love our constitution and our declaration and the laws that really I know this can be argued, but I can make a strong argument. They're based on godly laws. And at the same time, some of us may be heartbroken about some of the things that are happening, have happened, and are happening in our country. You can, you can hold those two emotions and balance those at the same time. But, but, but having said that, God, the, the countries and nations are God's idea, and it's natural to love your country. Here's the other thing we want to remember is that, that God does not command us to love our country. You know, that's, it's not a commandment of God. Like to submit to the laws of the land is a commandment of God. So we may or may not have that emotion, but ultimately, ultimately, we're Christians, and our number one allegiance as citizens is to God and our heavenly country. It is. The Bible says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And so we should not love our country so much that if we sense God was calling us, for instance, to another land, to be a missionary, preach the gospel, that we would refuse to go. Wherever we live, proximity is responsibility. Remember I mentioned the Jews who were exiles in Babylon who wrote that psalm? God sent a message to those exiles through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 7. He said, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Proximity is responsibility. Wherever we are, that's where we're to work and invest and be salt and light and let our influence be felt for the kingdom of God. Proximity is responsibility. Ultimately, we're just passing through. Let me end here with a, a passage from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. This passage emphasizes, it's talking here in this chapter about citizens of the kingdom of, of heaven and of God who paid the last full measure of devotion, who died for God and sacrificed everything for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> And the Hebrew writer says, all these people agreed they were foreigners and strangers here on the earth. All of us are. We're not illegal aliens. We're, we're legal aliens here on earth. And he said, obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. And this is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I personally believe what I teach about heaven is right that we're going to live on the new earth. Part of our love for our land, our country, and our home here is because God made us to live on an earth. And, and that's what the nature of the new earth is going to be like and, and heaven. Maybe there'll be a version, uh, a transcendent version of America in heaven. I hope so. I don't know. But we have our own version of Edelweiss. 
1918, Irving Berlin wrote a song called God Bless America. And it's really a prayer for the country. It's a prayer set to music. And the Bible tells us to pray you know, for our leaders in our country. So I hope it's okay that we sing that this morning as a prayer to God to bless our country. Would you stand with me? And let's just sing God Bless America. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans, White with foam, God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, sweet home. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you bless America. It's our homeland. We know your hand has been providentially involved in this country. We pray, God, that we can be the salt and the light that you've called us to be, that we can love it at the same time that we're speaking truth to power and making sure we let our Christian influence be brought to bear in our laws, in our people, and in America. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated.